What words describe you? You know, if you were to ask maybe those closest to you, your, your family members, uh, maybe some of your closest friends, uh, what words describe me? What, what do you think they'd say? Or as you just think through the question, what words describe you as an individual? Um, what words describe you as a church, us as a church? What, what words come to mind when we think about who, who SOMA church community is? Or kind of expanding out, maybe the church in Santa Rosa, right? We're, we're, we are one congregation and we're part of other churches that uh, believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, the one true uh, God and, and what he's revealed in his word. And, and we're part of a county and, and our state, our country, and the world, right? What, what describes the church? I want you to keep those in mind, those questions about you personally, maybe about us as a church, about the church. Um, as we continue this morning looking at the letters to the churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. So for the last five weeks or so, we have been working our way through uh, the letters to the seven churches. And so as I've said each week, um, there are seven cities, seven regions. You can take a look at the screen. Uh, what was simply considered Asia Minor uh, in the time of, of the Bible is now, of course, Turkey, that, that region there. And uh, you see those red dots and cities. And we come to Philadelphia, not the Philadelphia in our country, uh, but the Philadelphia of antiquity. And these were seven real cities, seven real churches, and they uh, are representative. They are representative of the church throughout all time. And, and again, Jesus says at, at the end or so of each letter to these seven churches, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Holy Spirit is saying to the churches. So we're going to look at Philadelphia today. Jesus had a word to them, but it's a word for for us, for everyone, and, and so forth. Uh, again, seven real churches, but they act as seven representative churches. For the most part, as we've said each week, and that's key, for the most part, because there's some times when the, the little grid doesn't quite fit, uh, but for the most part, there's always an address by Jesus to the angel of the church. And as we say each week, uh, the angel could be the, an actual angel, an angelic being, the word angelos, in Greek, simply means messenger, and so angels are messengers sent from God, uh, but sometimes an angelos was a person who was a messenger, and so this could very well be uh, an angelic being that's over the church. It could very well be uh, like the leaders, pastors, those messengers of these churches. Uh, it doesn't matter necessarily, but it's addressed to this messenger, this angel. Um, then there's a statement from Jesus about who he is. Most of the time, as we've seen, uh, Jesus pulls from something that was revealed in, John, or in Revelation chapter 1. When John started this letter, he gets this vision of Jesus, and there's statements from Jesus about himself. John sees Jesus and writes things down. And then as Jesus starts writing these letters, so far we've, we've seen him pull a phrase from chapter 1. Today there's... there's not much of a pull. There's just some other amazing statements about Jesus that he makes, about who he is. Uh, there's a statement of praise or a commending of this church, actually to five of them. Then there in the pattern is a rebuke or a concern, and that also comes to five of the churches. Um, the one today, Philadelphia today, along with Smyrna, who we looked at um, several weeks ago, the second letter, they only got a word of praise. Amazing. Uh, no rebuke to 
Smyrna and Philadelphia, and we'll see that today. Uh, Lord willing, next week, uh, this series will end with the church at Laodicea and a friend of ours uh, as a church, Adam Wilson, who's preached here uh, several times. He'll be back to to preach that message. Um, As a short aside, you can pray for uh, me uh, this week. I'll be in Orange County uh, for our denominational biennial conference. So as a denomination, the Evangelical Free Church of America meets every other year, every uh, two years to do its business. So we know as a church, we meet once a year to do our business, vote on our budget and other things. And so our denomination uh, meets every other year. I was in Chicago four years ago for this. And uh, two years ago, because of the pandemic, it got put online. Uh, and now this year it's in Orange County in Fullerton. And so I'll be there. Uh, and it's just a time to be together with other pastors all from the country that travel. Uh, it's kind of nice to only have to go to Southern California uh, for this, but you can pray for that, and it's called EFCA1, if you want to look that up, uh, I'll give a brief report next week, so Adam Wilson is coming in to, to finish the series on Laodicea, all right, back to the outline. There's an exhort, exhortation rather, um, to the church, maybe it's repent, if, if, if there's been a rebuke, or maybe it says, you know, Jesus says, don't fear, be faithful, continue, uh, some word of exhortation. Then again, there's a statement of what Jesus will do. Sometimes it's a consequence of of disobedience, or like we'll see today, it's an encouragement of what Jesus will do uh, sometime in the future to uh, God's people, to the church, as they hear this word. And then there's that invitation to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so we are today in Philadelphia. Uh, This is a city that is still around, although it doesn't go by the name Philadelphia. It's the modern city called Alashir. And it's located, as you can see on the map, on the eastern end there of these cities. And there's actually a big valley that that kind of is below Sardis and uh, above Philadelphia. And that valley extends uh, to the west, right into the Aegean Sea near Smyrna. Um, It was a very strategic uh, city in terms of its location. There were major trade routes back in antiquity uh, that gave it the title, Philadelphia, the title Gateway to the East. And it was a city of uh, large commercial importance. Um, with, with that trade route and that, that ability to be this important route, it had an economy based mostly on agriculture and industry. Uh, and it was a city that had a lot of prosperity. Um, but one drawback to the city, it, it was on a fault line. We can relate to that where we live uh, up here in Northern California. Uh, it was subject to earthquakes. Uh, and so there was this devastating earthquake in the year AD 17. And so, right, probably 75 or so years before John is writing this, before Jesus gives this word. So this earthquake from long time back, we can even think in our not too distant future about some of the earthquakes we have had, but this this devastating earthquake of AD 17, it leveled 12 cities of Asia back back in that time. Um, And it was particularly severe to the city of Philadelphia. Uh, As they rebuilt, they received help from uh, Rome. Uh, And so this imperial reconstruction aid uh, caused them to to thank Rome by briefly changing their name to Neo-Caesarea, Caesar's new city. So they were thankful for their their funds and they uh, 
gave themselves a second name for a time. You know, if it would have been like today, like when you drive into Sebastopol, there's like 20 names for what Sebastopol is or something like that. So they would have put a sign up that it said Philadelphia, but also Neo Caesarea uh, as they were honoring the, these funds. Now, the name Philadelphia, we, we might know what that name means. We have a city in our country, Philadelphia, the city of what? Brotherly love, except when it comes to sporting events. They, they, even when they win, they don't seem to be very loving. Um, but uh, yes, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And I was talking to one of my kids uh, last night about where this name came from. So it commemorates the loyalty and devotion of two brothers, uh, Attalus II, who was the younger, and his older brother, Eumenes II. So Attalus II and Eumenes II. So these two brothers and uh, their relationship um, before the city had the name, uh, but in that area, earned the city this name. Um, this, this devotion that the younger brother had for his older brother, hear that, if you have an older brother, I do as well, uh, this younger brother's devotion to his older brother um, it gave the younger brother uh, the nickname Philadelphus, okay, which means lover of his brother. So this, this guy, Attalus II, was given the nickname Philadelphus, lover of his brother. And there were two specific incidents uh, that, that gave him this name. First, there was a false rumor that the older brother, Eumenes, had, had been assassinated, and so the, the younger brother assumed the crown and assumed the kingship, but then his brother returned, wasn't dead, and uh, he returned from Greece, and so the younger brother appropriately took off the crown and gave it back to his older brother, didn't, didn't try to fight for his right to be the king, having presumed his brother was dead. This, the second incident, uh, apparently Rome didn't care for uh, the older brother too much, and they, the Roman authorities tried to convince the younger brother to uh, overthrow his brother, like stage a coup, and the younger brother refused uh, Rome and whatever they were offering and promising. And so because of his refusal uh, to, to cave to that pressure, uh, he resisted and was true to his older brother. And so he was coined this name, Philadelphus. And then eventually, because they ruled in that region, the city took on, the city took on that name, Philadelphia. It was remarkable for its many temples, religious festivals, um, in the 5th century AD, so quite a ways into the future, uh, Philadelphia was called Little Athens. So it was prominent in terms of being all about uh, what Rome uh, was all about and uh, the Roman Empire in those days. Uh, it, this valley region that, that kind of proceeds from the Aegean Sea into Philadelphia caused it to be a vine-growing district. We can relate to what that's like here in Sonoma and Napa County uh, in California. Uh, and so one of the Greek gods that was worshipped in that region was Dionysus, Dionysus, the, the god of wine and other sorts of things. And that was the chief pagan god that was worshipped. Now, Philadelphia and Smyrna. So on the map, you see Philadelphia circled and then Smyrna uh, to the left, the second church. They are the two churches that do not get a rebuke. There's no rebuke from Jesus. No word of concern. The only two, they, they receive what one writer calls unqualified praise from the Lord. Unqualified praise. 
but what's interesting is that Philadelphia was the youngest city of all of these seven. So likely, therefore, um, the youngest in terms of the church, possibly the size of the church. Um, and yet again, it receives nothing but praise. And so this morning, what I want us to consider is that this church in Philadelphia was full of good works, faithful to God's word, and unashamed of their faith. Full of good works, faithful to God's word, and unashamed of their faith. And that summarizes this, this, this word of praise that Jesus gives to this church. So let's keep that in mind as we, as we look at this church. And don't forget my questions. Uh, you know, what's, what would people say of you? What would people say of us? And, and, and then what we see of this church, full of good works, faithful to God's word, and unashamed of their faith. So if you brought your Bible, please open to Revelation 3. And let's spend our time that remains looking at this, this amazing church, truly an amazing church, full, faithful, and unashamed, full of good works, faithful to God's word, and unashamed of their faith, unashamed of God. I'll read Revelation 3, 7 to 13, and then we'll, we'll look at it together. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews but are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. And so to this angel, this messenger at Philadelphia, Jesus begins, the words of the Holy One the true one who has the key of David. So these, these phrases, again, these aren't found in chapter one. There is a reference in chapter one, verse 18, that Jesus has the keys of death and Hades, but that's obviously different than what he says here. So this juncture to this church, Jesus identifies three things about himself that he wants this church to hear. First, Jesus is the holy one and the true one. 
Now, these phrases are going to come several more times in the book of Revelation. Uh, in Revelation 6.10, it says, They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true. How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So at that point, that's them acknowledging God the Father, we might, we might say. O sovereign Lord, holy and true. But here, Jesus in chapter 3, verse 7, speaks of himself as the Holy One, the True One. So even more into the future, Revelation 19, verse 11, says that I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse the one sitting on it called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. So there you have not holy and true, but, but faithful and true. The point is that Jesus uh, is declaring his divinity uh, very clearly to this church. He says, I'm the holy one, I'm the true one. And, and to the Jewish Christians in this church, this is a church made up of both Jew and Gentile believers, but to the Jewish Christians in this church, they would have been very familiar that, that God was holy. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 25, Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 3. Um, I mean, that was God, the Holy One. And now the Lord Jesus is using that phrase to speak of himself. And he adds the phrase, the, the true one, and it is applied to him. And, and this idea of being true, there's, there's two ways scholars know we can think of it. If it's taken in sort of the classical sense, like if something's true and genuine, well, then it's used here to refute these Jews of Philadelphia. They, we heard the phrase synagogue of Satan, and they lie. Uh, and so the, the point is that um, the, the Jewish congregation claims that they follow the truth, but of course, Christianity is the fulfillment of Judaism, and now the church is Jew and Gentile in this a new, new thing, the, the church, the new Israel, and so forth. And, and so Jesus may be saying, like, I'm the genuine thing, I'm the true thing. And so that could be very much one idea at play. If it's also, and, and there's a couple of places in this letter where there's some ambiguity, uh, but it could also speak of the Old Testament sense of the word true. Uh, the Hebrew idea of something being true meant that it was faithful. And so if that's the intent uh, if true here, the true one speaks of the faithful one, then it could remind these believers that not only is Jesus holy, and the word holy, as it's derived, uh, the root of that word means set apart. So, so Jesus, like God, is holy, set apart, distinctively different, but, but he's true, he's genuine, he's faithful, and he's the one that can carry out the, the task that God has given to the Messiah, to the anointed one. He, it's him. Jesus very much is saying, I'm the faithful, holy one. I'm the true one. I, I am um, the Messiah. But he's not done. He then also says he holds the key of David, right? So this verse says, the holy one, true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Kind of sounds a little bit uh, like a proverb, but really what's going on here uh, is that Jesus, in, in using that description, again, is pulling uh, uh, phrases from the Hebrew scriptures, phrases that these Jewish Christians would undoubtedly know. Um, so uh, having the key of David spoke of, of him having the authority of David, 
So 2 Samuel 7 is the account where God promises to David and his line that, that he will have a kingdom that will be established forever. But of course, David died, Solomon died, and all the rest of the kings died. But Jesus, who comes in that line, lives. He did die, yes, but he rose and he ascended, and he is the king the, the promised fulfillment of the Davidic kingdom. And then you have passages like this, Psalm chapter 89, verses 28 and 29. God says, my covenant love, my steadfast love, I will keep for him forever. And my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of heaven. That was a Davidic psalm uh, and, and it was this prophetic promise to what would be true. So you have this reference of Jesus in this messianic status. He holds the keys of David. He's the one. But there's also this this corollary to this incident that happened in uh, the history of God's people. So back in Isaiah chapter 22, you have this this incident um, where there was this, this oracle, this word against Shebna, Shebna was Hezekiah's chief steward. Um, and, and Shebna, this is Isaiah 22, he was removed from office and replaced with another chief uh, of office, Eliakim. And concerning the new chief steward, Eliakim, Isaiah 22, verse 22 says, I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. Sounds just like Revelation 3, 7. So Jesus is pulling that phrase saying, yeah, that was pointing head to me. That, that, that is an antecedent reference. It had a historical moment, but it really was playing on the fact that I, I'm the Messiah. I hold the true key, the final key. And just like uh, what happened to Shebna as he was removed and Eliakim was put in place, and I give him the key to the house, and what he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. Well, that authority ultimately is found in Jesus as the heir and true Messiah. So again, imagine you're, you're a Jewish Christian. You know these stories. You know Isaiah. You know the Psalms. And here Jesus says, I'm the holy one. That holy, that's God. I'm the true, genuine, faithful one. That, that's a characteristic of God. And I hold the key of David. And what I shut, no one can open. And what I open, no one can shut. I mean, they would have heard loud and clear this one that's speaking to us. He's the one. He's the promised one. This is our God. This is our God. Verse 8, Jesus continues to this church, this word of praise, this, this commending word. He says simply first, I know your works. Now, you might remember last week, Jesus said the same thing uh, to Uh, the church in Sardis, I know your works and that you have a name, a reputation, but really it's just a name. In other words, you don't really have any works. A little sarcasm. Here, there's very much none of that. Jesus simply declares, I know your works. He's going to praise them in a moment for their their endurance, their, their patient, steadfast endurance as one particular. But listen to what else he says. Verse eight, I know your deeds, your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door. There's, there's that door idea. We'll come back to that in a moment, which no one can shut. I know that you have but 
little power, micros, the Greek word for something small, dunamis, the word for power, micros, dunamis, small power, little power. I know that you're little, you feel insignificant, but you've kept my word and have not denied my name. Full, faithful, unashamed, full of good works, faithful to God's word, kept it, have, have, have done what God said to do. We'll see that phrase again in a moment. And, and then it says, you have not denied my name. Those are their works, most specifically. Full of good works, faithful to God's word, and unashamed of their faith. But Jesus starts with this door opening, shut stuff, which again kind of comes right out of what he said in verse seven. And now he applies it to this church. Jesus says, I have set before you an open door. So I mentioned ambiguities, right? We have some ambiguity, not only in uh, Jesus saying, I'm the true one, true as in genuine, but if it's pulling from the Old Testament, the Hebrew, then it's true as in uh, faithful. Well, here too, there's some ambiguity. Um, if you know your Bible, if you've studied the Bible, uh, this phrase, an open door, will be familiar to you. And I'm talking to us here in our day. This is a phrase that comes up quite a bit in, in the New Testament. And, and it, when it does in all the other contexts, the idea is an open door for ministry, an open door for evangelism. So it, it shows up in Acts 14, verse 27, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 9, 2 Corinthians 2, verse 12, and, and one of my favorites uh, Colossians chapter four, verse three. And in that reference, Colossians four, verse three, the apostle Paul is asking the church at Colossae to pray for him. I love that. And one of the things he says, pray for an open door for me to proclaim the word. Pray that as I travel, there would be this open door for me to make clear God's word. So, so that idea governs these other passages. Uh, Acts 14 says, when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. 1 Corinthians 16.9, a wide door for effective work has opened to me. 2 Corinthians 2.12, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, then Paul goes on to speak of it. Uh, and so that's, that's the common phrase. And so one of the principles in, in good Bible study, if you don't know this, you should know this, uh, we always want to let the Scripture interpret Scripture. And so uh, if this phrase finds itself at other places in the Bible, generally speaking, it, it helps give the interpretation for what it means. Uh, and, and so it's, that's one of the things we do. And so it's very possible that here in Revelation, when, when Jesus says, I know your works, I know you have little power, but you have this, I've set before you an open door that he very much might be saying, like all these other examples, Philadelphia, church that has this name of being about brotherly love, uh, church though that's small and little and you, you feel insignificant, I've, I've given you an open door. Like, like be bold, be, be strong and courageous, share, love people, do those good works that you're already doing. And, and, and Jesus could very well simply be communicating that. It is very, very likely that is um, what Jesus means. However, it's not the only meaning. And that's because not only should Scripture interpret Scripture, but most especially, 
the immediate context of Scripture should interpret Scripture. So when, when Jesus here says this phrase, what else in its immediate world is going on? Well, we've already heard Jesus say in verse 7 that he has the key of David and who opens, no one will shut, and who shuts, no one will open. And now I have said before you an open door, and, and so that, that seems to govern what is at play. And then a little bit later on in the text, there's going to be um, speaking of uh, them conquering and, and reigning and, and a new city coming down. And, and, uh, and, and so it seems that the immediate context also giving us our understanding of this uh, open door that I've set before you is, is simply Jesus saying, um, I've given you entry into my presence. You, you, have, you have me. I've, I've opened it for you to be mine and for you to dwell with me. Again, similar passages in the Old Testament. Isaiah 60 verse 11 says, Your gates shall be opened continually. Day and night they shall not be shut, that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. A, a reference to the future. This is from Isaiah speaking of uh, the messianic kingdom. There's going to be this opening where day and night, night and day, people can come and go. And then in Revelation 21, so toward the end, Speaking of the new heaven and the new earth, the, uh, the kingdom, its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. So in Revelation, um, this inheritance that one day will come when the new heaven and new Jerusalem come uh, and, and God is there, and we've said it before, that what we gain in heaven Yes, it's about eternal life and, and crowns and all that, but ultimately, the crown is eternal life. Ultimately, the reward is, is the eternal life that is God. We, we get him. He has us. We'll never leave him. And, and, and that ultimately is the prize promise. The one who's faithful, the one who conquers, is simply the Christian who, in the end, gains the Lord. That's what we get one day, church. As we, as we sang a moment ago, um, how God never lets go of us through the calm, through the storm, through the trials. There will be an end. The end ultimately is God. God being in his presence. He is our great reward. The door was open because although this church had little power, they had faithfully kept Jesus' word. They didn't deny his name. Yes, they had opposition from the imperial cult at the Jewish synagogue, but they were faithful. And so I think it fits, fits both meanings. God had given them an open door to do their ministry, do their work, to, to share and to see God at work. But ultimately, they were given a door to God's presence. They, 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 they were gonna get to be with God one day. And we'll, we'll see the text here at the end uh, play that out. Verse nine, behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. So again, there, there's some challenge in, in our ears as we read this. Uh, the synagogue of Satan uh, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Again, this is one of those passages. We, we heard that phrase, synagogue of Satan, in an earlier letter. Um, and, and again, sadly in history, uh, people have twisted the meaning and, and, 
used it for anti-Semitic purposes. That, that's not what Jesus is saying here. Again, John, who is writing, was very much Jewish. Of course, Jesus himself was very much Jewish. Uh, the point is, these Jews who are Jewish in their ethnicity, now that Jesus has come, they need to put their faith in him and become part of the church, part of the new Israel, and not rely simply on their ethnic background. And so to, to be stiff-arming God and Messiah um, and to say that they are truly God's people, Jesus saying, no, they're not my people now. My people are Jew and Gentile who belong to me. I've come for Jew and Gentile. And then it's amazing here because he, he twists something. In, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew scriptures, it was the Gentiles that hear the good news and come and bow down uh, but now it's kind of inverted and it's going to be um, some of these Jewish people by ethnicity who when they come to Christ, they'll, they'll bow down as well and everyone will bow down. Jesus is simply saying here, um, they, they are expelling you and you might recall some of these other cities we've noted, um, the, the Jewish synagogues, they, the Jewish religion, they had um, a state protection of sorts, if you will. They, they were allowed to operate uh, and they had worked things out. But along comes Christianity, the fulfillment of Judaism. They haven't earned this Roman um, blessing, if you will. And so um, there are these synagogues that operate, but the Christians that gather similarly, um, they're not allowed to, and the Jewish synagogues point against them and let the Roman authorities know. And so the, the Christian gatherings were persecuted while the Jewish ones weren't. And Jesus says, I know, I know that um, there are those that lie, that, that really Satan's at work blinding them, deceiving them to, to follow me. Um, but one day, one day when I come, one day when I return, when the new heaven and new earth comes, they're, they're going to bow. And, and what does he say they're going to learn? Not, not that I'm in charge. He says, they're going to learn that I have loved you. Philadelphia, a city of brotherly love. They're going to learn that I love you. I love you. What an, what an amazing statement. Again, Jesus knows what he says <laughs> to these churches. These, quote, synagogues of Satan have rejected the one who is the promised Messiah, the one who has the key of David. But one day, true Jews are those who belong to Jesus, spiritually Jewish. Not, again, ethnicity, this isn't about that, but true Jews, true spiritual ones will belong to Jesus. And again, we have phrases, Philippians 3.3, 3, Galatians 6.16, 6, that speak of the true Israel. It's, it's the fulfillment of, of Judaism. The love of God for his people. And again, that's a phrase picked up from Isaiah. Isaiah 43.4, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, I love you. I love that. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, I love you. And that's what Jesus says to these believers. The eschatological, that is the last things, the, the reversal is coming. The Philadelphian believers are encouraged to press on, to keep on. They're, they're part of the true people of God, Jew and Gentile. And one day, all that they've suffered will be vindicated. Verse 10, because you have kept my word, there's that phrase again, you, you have been faithful to keep my word. And here Jesus specifies, you've been faithful about patient endurance. You've, you've endured hostility, but you're, 
You're enduring, patiently enduring. He says, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. He says, there's, there's a day coming, uh, there's an hour coming when, when a trial is coming and I will keep you from that hour. Now, some, some believe that means they're gonna literally escape it. To, to, to be kept from might mean to escape it. I think it simply means that they'll, they'll be kept through it. In spite of the trial, in spite of the, the tribulation, God will keep them through it. And you have so many passages throughout the Old and New Testament where, um, again, God, God keeps his people in the midst of things that they suffer. In the midst of testing and suffering, they, they make it through. And we, we could look at many examples. I, I'm gonna skip just for the sake of time this morning. Jesus will keep them through it. They, they might face it. They might be persecuted. They might go to jail. They might be martyrs. And that's happened throughout history. It's happening today in places in the world. But that won't cause them to lose Jesus. It won't cause them to lose the promise. There, there's a, a day coming, coming on the whole world. And those who keep my word, who, are pa- who have persevered through patient endurance, I will keep through, from, in the midst of. Verse 11, Jesus says, I'm coming soon. And we look at that and we go, Jesus soon? It's been 2,000 years plus or minus. <laughs> soon to us is a lot different than soon to God. And that's so hard for us. Um, you heard me joke a few weeks ago. Um, I want things now. <laughs> I, I want to be free of my trials now. I, I want to be free from my um, sinful tendencies now. I, 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 want, I want it yesterday now. But God's time is different. He is coming soon, and, and he's being patient with us. We don't know when he's coming but it'll happen. He's faithful. He's true. He's got the keys. And so he says to this church, hold fast what you have. So no one receives that crown. And then again, to the one who conquers, verse 12, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And here again is this back to the key idea and, and things being opened and shut and vice versa. Never shall he go out of it, And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Again, here's the promise to these conquerors, to these victors, those who remain faithful, who prove to be genuine believers. The one who ultimately conquered gives these amazing promises to to be a pillar in the temple of God again, lots of symbolism going on in these these ideas, um, but but the uh, the point is they have access to the heavenly temple, to the new Jerusalem. Um, they they have the status of being immovable pillars in the temple. Again, some similar language uh, we can look at in other places. But but what a promise! Remember Philadelphia, a city that had been leveled by an earthquake a city that shook a lot and had to be rebuilt and had to get aid from Rome and give an honorary name thanking Rome. But, but this city, uh, these people, one day, they'll be pillars in a new city where no earthquake is gonna 
going to devastate them. John is simply saying believers are going to be where God is and are going to dwell where God dwells. And again, if we were to look ahead into Revelation 21 and 22, we'd hear, as I'll read, I saw uh, no temple in the city, in fact, for its temple is the Lord God and the Almighty Lamb. So we speak about the new heaven, the new earth, and the temple, but there really isn't a new temple at the end. The new temple, according to the end of Revelation, is the Lord God Almighty. And so again, as we connect Revelation 3 with what's to come, believers are where God is, and, and the whole universe is God's temple. And there's no need for an actual temple because God is there. And so this, this language is that believers are secure. To be a pillar means to be secure. You can't be dislodged, and nothing can take you and snatch you. No enemy, no persecution, no synagogue of Satan, those that, that are under the influence of the evil one who persecute, none of that will change what, what is to come. So it's Philadelphia, this, this church, that, that you, you are full of good works, you're faithful to God's word, you're unashamed of, of your faith and who God is, there's a reward coming. Continue on, press on, don't give up. Who are you? Who do people describe you as? That's the question I started with this morning. What comes to people's minds, those that know you? What comes to your mind? What comes to your mind to describe our church? You know, honestly, this week, um, this, this letter encouraged me a ton. Because look, you know, we're not pushing four services a weekend and, you know, parking lot attendants needing to move people through because the next batch of people are coming through. And that's fine, right? This, this is who we are. But yet at times it can feel like we're, we're, we're little, little power, my cross dunamis, you know, are we doing, are we making any difference? And, and I'm encouraged as, as one of your pastors that we, as an almost 15-year-old church, um, we're full of good works by God's grace, right? We're, we're working hard, but it's God working in us as we try to love one another, love our city, um, and be a church full of good works. I pray, I think we have been faithful to God's word, not only from what is taught up front here, but in the Sunday school classrooms to other studies and groups, we, we believe that this is the self-revelation of God. This is where we learn who God is, what he's done, what he's called us to. We look here. We look here first. We take our cues from, from this. The world may tell us other things all the time, but, but we'll, we'll be faithful to this. And I think we've been unashamed of our faith, unashamed of who our God is. And so I, I've taken courage as a lowercase messenger to this church, our church, uh, as, as I've heard Jesus speak to me, to us in this, this letter. Let's continue, Soma, to, as individuals, but as a church, be like Philadelphia, full of good works, faithful to God's word, unashamed of our faith, unashamed of who he is. Because one day, if we continue, and we thus prove to be genuine believers, we, we will get God. So as hard as things are now, the challenges, the struggles, um, we, we will get God, to quote one commentator, even if our power is small, like the Church of Philadelphia, 
even if our church seems slight or insignificant, a door is open for us that will never be closed. A door for ministry and a door to God's presence. God protects, defends those who belong to him. And when judgments are unleashed on the earth, he will guard and keep us from committing apostasy and falling away. That's a promise. That's a promise. Let's pray and let's sing uh, an old familiar, hopefully, chorus reminding us that, that God knows us by name. He knows our name. Would you stand as I pray? Father, thank you for the church at Philadelphia from 2,000 years ago. This little church, this insignificant church that Jesus, you said, was full of good works, faithful to your word, and unashamed of their faith. And you gave them encouragement, God, through these words of the Lord Jesus. And I pray we, too, would be encouraged as a church, as individuals who make up this church. Thank you that we do also have an open door, that Jesus, since you have the keys and you've placed before us um, an opportunity for ministry, people in our life, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our jobs, in our city, in our county, we have an open door for ministry. It's at times difficult, at times we're made fun of, at times there's hostility, but but there's an opportunity that is ours. I pray we would seize those open doors to be faithful to your word. But thank you that ultimately we get you regardless of what we face. Um, Thank you that you know our name. Thank you that you know our name. And nothing can snatch that name away. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.